Welcome to episode number 58 of Peak Curiosity. My name is Abigail Carlson. Have you ever wondered why you can't shake insecurities or you have a hard time asking your partner for what you need? Well, apparently there's a fairly simple answer. It's attachment. My guest today is Adam Lane Smith. He is a retired psychotherapist and his expertise is in this field of attachment. In this episode, we discuss how our modern living conditions only exacerbate this issue and how unhealthy attachment greatly influences your understanding of and relationship with God. I'm going to read you a few of Adam's tweets to give you an idea of who this guy is. Male depression is nearly always a result of learned helplessness, but health providers treat it like female depression and try to make men feel loved instead of powerful. Uh, Here's one. I survived Y2K for this. And then the one that kind of sparked the second half of this conversation is, it's impossible for a Christian to have a healthy relationship with God if their attachment is broken. They'll struggle to accept divine love and forgiveness, will act to earn approval instead of building a relationship, and the pressure will drive them to sin in dopamine binges. Anyway, so you can see that his Twitter is just a goldmine. If you want to follow his Twitter, his handle is at TheBrometheus. I'm actually not sure if that's how you say it, but either way, the link will be in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this episode. I know I learned a lot, and my life has actually already improved after taking his words to heart. All right, happy listening. So I'm Adam Lane Smith. I'm a retired psychotherapist. Um, I've worked for many years as a licensed marriage and family therapist. I worked with couples, individuals, I did group treatments. I gave seminars to uh, professionals from a range of mental health areas, also nursing. Um, I I taught nurses also in that regard. I taught pretty much everyone about attachment and the way that attachment can intersect with trauma and the way that attachment impacts your relationship quality, your life quality, your anxiety issues. So that's been my clinical specialty. Um, When I worked in a, I worked in a clinic, that was my latest job. Um, They would send me the hardest cases (laughs) on purpose. (laughs) They would send me the, the most severe traumas the couples that no one else could figure out how to help them get Mm. better. And I loved that because number one, I like a challenge. Number two, I love helping people, especially when they are frustrated and they've been to five other therapists and they don't know how to get better. Um, Before that, I worked in a correctional facility. I worked with inmates who were up for the death penalty for severe crimes, multiple murders, child mutilation, things like that, gang member dropouts, helping them figure out where their life had gone wrong and how they wanted to live better in the time that they had remaining. A lot of them had kids and they needed a parent from in prison. Um, That I worked also in in in-home care for working with people who were disabled due to mental illness, couldn't leave their home, um, had severe financial difficulties, all kinds of things. So if it was tough to leave their home, but they needed mental health care, that was also my job. So done a lot of mental health treatment over the years. (laughs) And all of that kind of boiled down into figuring out how at the core of who we are as human beings, attachment is so crucial because life is about relationships. Everything that is important to us boils down to relationships. Even if you are a painter, you are trying to express who you are and what you see on the inside to other people. That is still a relationship. If you're an author, you have readers. Um, That is your relationship. And you are giving your readers what you are, what you, what you see and, and hear on the inside. Um, every job, 
is about relationships. And then all of your relationships are also what give your life meaning, all those close relationships. Attachment is your ability to securely connect to other human beings, believe that they actually care about you, that you actually provide value in those relationships, and that you can trust those relationships to stay around, even if you make a mistake. So if you don't have the ability to do that, your entire life falls into chaos and it breeds tremendous anxiety. It lowers the threshold to get post-traumatic stress disorder. It makes it very easy to get depression, uh, severe depression, even suicide. If you don't believe things will ever get better. I've seen, I've seen horrible, horrible mental health circumstances clear up within weeks of fixing attachment with no medication. That's, That's amazing. Am. That's amazing. Um, my first question is, can you play the bagpipes that are on your wall behind you? <laughs> no, but I wish that I could. Um, it's just, I am, uh, my mother is very Scottish. So okay. that's a homage to my family history there. Bummer. I was hoping we'd get a song. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe next time, learn next time. I'll let you date. I'll have to learn. That's right. There we go. Give me a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you give like the, just the quickest little, what attachment is really quick, Absolutely. like two minutes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Attachment is your ability to securely connect to another human being, believing that you are lovable, that they can love you and will continue to love you without falling actively out of love with you, without abandoning you if they find out who you are, and without being angry if you bring up your needs and ask them for them. Your attachment, that, that's what attachment is. It's belief that all of those things are good and will happen. When you have an attachment issue, you believe the opposite, that people will abandon you if they find out who you really are on the inside, that if you ask for your needs to get met, that they will treat you like a burden and they will be angry or disgusted with your needs. So you have to do 10 nice things for them and hope that they figure out what you secretly need. And then they'll be so grateful that they'll do it for you in return. And this, obviously, you can see how that would absolutely destroy any relationship. I always th thought that that was just what humans were. I didn't know that, that you is, could not be like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's most people have no idea that that's the case. Huh. Most people. Are there different kinds of attachment or do they all relatively, are they all relatively the same? Um, it's a tricky question because the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, only recognizes attachment issues in children. It recognizes young children. Um, there, and there's, there's various diagnoses for specific types of attachment disorder, reactive attachment disorder, avoidant attachment disorder, anxious attachment disorder. Um, but you cannot diagnose those in a teen or in an adult. They just don't happen um, from the APA's view. Hmm. In the APA's view, if you have a significant enough attachment disorder that you would be diagnosed with it as a child, there are some tests that people can get done for children um, but the belief is that it almost always grows into oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, something severe, and then always grows into a personality disorder later on. So it, the personality disorders that you see, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, there's a lot of them. Those are the most extreme examples of attachment disorder uh, or attachment issues that are diagnosable. Most people are not diagnosable. Most people go into their therapist with attachment issues and attachment isn't even assessed or discussed. And instead you are diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. And they just say, well, you're just kind of an anxious person because your family system is kind of weird and chaotic. 
but they don't have the verbiage to discuss attachment in adults. That's just mm. not really discussed. I'm one of the very few um, specialists in the United States that really talks about adult attachments. There's a few others, um, but it's, it's, it's a very new field that no one is really talking about. Is this caused by the parent-child relationship? It can be. I mean, that's the strongest indicator is parent-child. And, and you can have wonderful parents, but if they put you in daycare at birth and you're in daycare for the first six months and your parents hardly ever see you and they come home exhausted and they don't have time to play with you and the child is at daycare with people who are not related to them, especially um, the, the brain can develop at that time can develop some pretty severe issues. The child really needs at least family bonding within those first six months. And, and it's not just the daycare. It's again, it's working, being gone all those hours, coming home exhausted, barely being able to interact with the child and the child can smell their mother. So it knows when it's mom. And it also knows when people kind of smell like mom. Um, it, it's really tough. Daycare is a big piece. Daycare in, in young infancy, abuse, neglect, um, even if the parents just don't have healthy attachment themselves. So I've mapped out for the last hundred years since World War I, family attachments have broken more and more in every generation. And the problem has been growing in the population instead of decreasing. So a lot of parents had, their grandparents were traumatized or had really bad issues and had abuse. The parents say, I'm going to be a better parent than you were, and I'm going to not do those things, but they don't know how to do the good things that breed good attachment and make the child feel safe and secure. So then they have a child and the child doesn't understand why the parent is acting the way they are, anxious, detached a little bit, always nervous, um, not doing the good things that build that relationship because they just don't know how. And then the child grows up anxious and, and struggling and nobody knows why, because there hasn't been any trauma in three generations. Everything should be fine. We're in a good family. And I treated so many 12-year-old boys who came in and had severe attachment issues um, with no trauma in the past two generations. Hmm. Um, gir girls, girls can hold it together sometimes <laughs> a little better than boys can because they, well, they have social skills. They okay. can fall back on a lot of social skills. And girls usually are really big people pleasers. And so their performance stays high um, in school, typically, until they are a little bit older, until 13, 14, 15, and then depression hits, and then their performance tanks. Boys, a lot of times at 12, 11, 12, 13, that's when a lot of the depression starts to hit. Uh, at least initially, and their their performance starts to nosedive because they just can't hold it together and they can't people please and convince everyone around them that they're doing great. Um, girls can hide that anxiety a little bit better sometimes. So that was a big component of what I saw. Hmm. So I wanted to talk about World War II or one and the progression. I listened to your episode with Chris Williamson and you said this would take the whole hour so I won't talk about it. And I thought, I wish you would just talk about it. So you can take the whole hour here <laughs> if you'd like, but yeah. I would like to give this a shot because I have just called this cultural PTSD and I've tried to explain it to people and people think I'm dumb. They kind of look at me with the no. look like, yeah, that's a dumb thing to think. But I always thought, so we have World War One, where we have 18 year olds going into war and sometimes even with their dads, mm -hmm. the ones who do make it home, try to have kids, but are obviously a little bit messed up because, I mean, World War One, 
then immediately those kids are going into World War II with the Great Depression thrown in and the Dust Bowl. Mm -hmm. Then we come back, not too much later, we have the Cold War and Vietnam. And it just continues until we have today. I think we just are just anxious for another thing to happen. But I'd always had associated it associated it with anxiety about the world and not necessarily our personal relationships mm-hmm, mm-hmm. your thoughts so so there's a lot of big pieces and i could talk for a straight hour about this if okay go to. ahead um consider especially in the united states and in the west as a whole prior to world war one we we had big cities especially here in america but the majority of people lived rural 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 villages small towns your fam- you would grow up with the same hundred people. And the human brain through research is only really meant to care about about 150 people, to know them, to care about them and recognize them and, and have any connection to them. It's really hard to care about more than 150 individuals. It's really tough. Um, prior to World War I, America was, was not really a strong industrialized nation. So we would live in these small towns. If your parents weren't perfect, you had five, 10 aunts and uncles around you, grandma, grandpa, you had all these other generations, great grandparents were around. People had parents younger, uh, kids younger. Um, You'd have a network of 50 to 100 family members alone. And then this huge village community around you that would be booming in farming towns. Attachment, really strong attachment, even if your parents aren't perfect, it really only requires a strong, secure connection to about three people that you know, accept you and love you. And in a small community like that, everybody really knows who you are. You can't hide like today or you're on the internet. You can hide who you are and you're in a city of strangers and maybe you have two parents and maybe one sibling and that's your whole family network. That was, I think about it, a hundred years ago, you couldn't get away from your family. So if you had a problem, they would hunt you down and find you and help you stop being miserable. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not like we imagine today where it's like, oh, family's horrible. If you had a problem back then, they just beat you with a stick until you were bet. No, it wasn't that way. People loved each other back then. They had a lot better love than we do today. Um, World War I hit and it, it didn't just decimate the population. I mean, it did. You had all the shell shock, the thousand yard stairs, what we called it back then, the shell shock soldiers coming back. Um, You had that and it was a meat grinder and we lost a ton of people in that generation. A lot of the strongest, um, how do I want to say, most resilient young men were peeled away and were killed overseas. Um, So there's some research that some people do, and I don't know if I buy it, but there's some research that even our genetic pool got a little bit weaker from World War I because some of the strongest people were weeded out in the draft and killed, and then the the not as strong young men were left. Um, I don't know that I buy that, but it's a note. Um, They sent them overseas to die, and then they came home and said, all right, get over it. You fought a war, who cares? And we began the process of industrialization, of moving into the heavy, the big cities, moving into factory jobs, moving into 18-hour workdays, moving into child labor, moving into families being shoved into an apartment. And there's 12 of you in that apartment. And there, it's a one-room apartment with a little chamber pot for a toilet. And then hating, hating that because families aren't meant to live like that. And then breaking up, splitting off the crime in the cities, the problems in the cities, people desperate to get away from it, people miserable. So families fracturing and and just exploding. Then you have the 20s, 
where people drank their problems away and massive excess, all kinds of problems, hardcore gangs. Um, then the 20s crashed. We got in a big central banking piece. The credit system boosted and then completely nosedive, flattened everything in this country. Um, the Dust Bowl, you have the Great Depression, which went on and on and on. And that generation, they had fought World War One, And then as adults, they had to save every little screw and nail. And they had trauma from that of every little piece of anything had to be saved or your family could die because your family couldn't even afford shoes last week, things like that. Um, that generation, and there uh, was that the greatest generation because they also went on and fought World War II. Um, they turned around industrialization, turned around, fought World War II. Um, central banks encouraged everybody then when they came back with the GI Bill to have their own family home, their nuclear family of just mom and dad and kids, nobody else. Every person had to be in a home. So instead of one family staying together on a big plot of land with five houses, you all split up and now had to pay for five different mortgages, five different utilities, five different everything and put enormous strain because then it was only the husband can work. And he has to provide all of the money for the household and only the wife can take care of the children. So she has to keep up the entire household alone, which is where you start to see a couple genera a couple of decades later, mother's little helper, the little blue pill for anxiety for moms who now, instead of having 10 adult women in the household and she has a newborn baby and she can hand the baby off to grandma and go take a three hour nap and then feel like a better mom and take care of everybody. And all the women would work together to take up the, keep the household up and love each other. Nope. Now she's alone and she's shouldering the entire burden of everything. Not great. Um, that generation didn't talk about their problems. We call them the silent generation because they just bunkered down and endured it. Cause that's what life was. Life was suffering to them. And they gave all of their little saved nails and screws and, and crap to their kids, the baby boomer generation who grew up with traumatized parents and broken little tiny nuclear families where everybody was tense and the parents didn't have time for the kids and the baby boomers, half of them kind of got it and understood that love, life is suffering and love to love someone else means to struggle for them and care for them. And the other half said, I hate you. I hate everybody. I'm going to make life about me. And they made life about them. They are currently in their seventies and eighties. They are all, they're still tripling the divorce rate, the historic divorce rate. The baby boomers are tripling that in their seventies and eighties. They are continuing to get divorced in their seventies and eighties. So when families get divorced, what do they usually tell their kids? Well, mom and dad, we just don't love each other anymore. We just fell out of love. Telling that to a little child, that that's how family works, <laughs> that love is a family and love and bonding is based on loving each other and how you feel about each other. And if you don't feel good enough about each other, you will abandon each other. The little child's brain, when they're that little, says everything is my fault. When they're one, two, three, my kids, when they drop something, it hits the floor and that's how they learn about gravity. But if they throw a toy and the TV turns off, they think they turned off the TV by throwing a toy. They're learning cause and effect. They think that dad leaves because they're not a good enough kid. They think that if they were a better kid, the family would have stayed together. They it's not rational, but it's that little brain. Abuse, all of those things start to happen. Um, and the child brain believes that it's their fault. So from the baby boomers, you have Gen X, Gen Y comes in, the generations we forget about. That's my generation. Um, where it was pretty much like, wow, life sucks. 
I've never seen a great family. I've seen okay families. Once in a while, we'll have a friend whose parents stayed together and we're like, wow, that family really works. Mostly we saw good families on TV and movies and we kind of wanted that, but we had no idea how to get that. And then we had another economic crash (laughs) in 2008. Um, The millennials came along who had never experienced a good family connection, had never seen what it looked like prior to World War I where families lived together. They think that good families are only things that you see on tv and then it's all make-believe like a hallmark movie and then you get what is it next gen z (laughs) who is now angry at everybody else because their parents are like the millennials and the millennials don't even get married the millennials just do whatever they're going to do and they're using drugs in front of their kids not all of them but a lot of a lot of families i saw come in they'd be like yeah i use drugs my kids know i use drugs and mom would have five different boyfriends through the house two of them would met would molest the kids um one of the biggest indicators of of child being molested is the stepdad or the mom's boyfriend does like the number one vectors of little girls being molested is the other people mom brings into the house um huge huge catastrophic problems and they just think it's normal they just think being alone is normal they think feeling isolated and alienated from other people is normal they think that being anxious all the time is normal and they think that having to perform and earn love and approval from other people is normal they think it's normal because that's what our generation and that's what our culture has done for 100 years what else do we have there's nothing else so when i say yeah, 100 years ago, it wasn't like this. They say, no, 100 years ago, they would feel like I feel, but they'd be shoved together in these family units. They would hate that. I would hate having to live with 50 family members. That would be horrible. How could? How dare you tell me that that's a good idea? They imprint our modern broken attachment and brokenness on the people from 100 years ago. Yeah, 100 years ago, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't perfect by far, but they had different problems than we're experiencing now. It's not like they had... Again, it's not like they would beat each other with sticks when someone was unhappy. They actually loved each other because they recognized what love was. They had to. They had to. And they had giant family networks that would heal what we have now. Imagine if you had five aunts and three of them really loved you and invested in you as a kid and helped raise you and what you didn't get from other people they gave you and they cared for you. Imagine if you, yeah, you didn't have a bunch of friends, but you had 20 cousins and two of them became your best friends. And you guys formed this little group where you were close, little thickest thieves, three little cousins who went everywhere together kind of thing. That's what a family system should, should be. And that's what a family system was. And again, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but through the central banking system, I mean, their point is to make money. They encouraged all of us to gravitate away from that yeah. while our generation, while, while all these other disasters were also happening, while the Dust Bowl went on, while these wars were raging, while all these things went on for a hundred years, all of that has happened. And that is why we are where we are today, where everybody, instead of having a character and saying, this is who I am, we have identities. We say, I identify as, and whatever it could be. Um, anything. I, an author, I identify as an author. I identify as a painter. That's who I am. Instead of I am loved and already interesting for who I am. And these are some cool things about me. We say, this is what makes me interesting. This makes me worthy of attention. Please give me attention for whatever I do instead of for who I am. Um, we, we build identities instead of growing character. And that is, that is one of the worst outgrowths of all that. So that's the hundred years of broken attachment system. 
I actually wanted to ask about identity building because um, that is such a big thing happening right now. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it seems like the number one things that people think should be worthy of identity is skin color and sexual orientation. Yeah. Those don't seem like the most solid building blocks to me. No. <laughs> so how, if, if uh, I want you to answer two questions based on two different people, if you're like a teenager, possibly listening to this, what should be some good foundations for identity? Number two, if you're a parent of a teenager, how can you gently guide into strong identity? Yeah. I, I mean, there is, um, there is a huge difference between a gay man and a man who happens to be gay. A gay man has made that the center of his identity. And, and there's some community elements to that, right? You've got the LGBT community. Um, you've got that, that component. And that's a piece of it is feeling like they belong in a community because they, again, they don't have those family network structures that should be there. So they've built a, a new family through that community. Um, so there's, there's a piece of that identity that can, that can be helpful as, I, as um, community flags. But making that the core of who you are, making any feature of yourself the core of who you are, what that does is it supplants who you actually are. That's substituting genuine value in you as a person for the decisions you have made and the quality of your character and the honorable behavior that you do of when, someone is, when someone's hurting, I help them. I am a compassionate person. I am a, an honest person. I'm a loyal person. I'm an honorable person. Instead of doing that, because the core of attachment is the belief that something deep down makes other people see who we are and abandon us. Because if it wasn't that way, our parents would still be married. They'd still be around. So-and-so wouldn't have hurt me. That person would have molested me when I was three. You know, Whatever it is, the belief is that there's something wrong with me inside. And if other people see it, they'll leave me because they'll be so disgusted, but I don't know what it is. So I have to cover that up and hide that. So the belief is that you don't have anything worthwhile inside of who you are. So you have to supplant that with something that gives you strength, something that gives you an identifier in a community. Um, I am not an author myself. <laughs> I am a man <laughs> who happens to also write books. I've written 26 books. Um, am I in a writing community? I might identify myself there as an author, but when someone asks Adam, who are you? I won't say I'm an author, right? You asked right. me at the beginning to describe the work that I have done. So in that capacity, I said, I'm a retired psychotherapist. But if you asked me who I am, I would say I'm Adam Smith. That's who I am. And then if you said, what does that mean? I would begin by listing my relationships that have that show who I am. I'm a father, right? I'm a husband. And, and, and then further on down the line, as far as you want to go with my relationships, but those show who I am. And then you say, well, okay, he says he's a father. What does that mean for his, for who he is? Well, how does he parent? How does he care about his children? Then you look at my kids and hopefully you say, wow, look at those healthy kids. They are happy. They are moral people they are caring and compassionate with each other he is a father and he's an engaged father and he loves his children his children this much that would be who i am those are the choices i have made those are the actual hard effort decisions i have made as a human being that is who your identity should be the content of your character is based on your decisions that you make not on your hobbies not on your interests not on your preferences and not on your innate qualities like skin color 
who you are is none of those things. Who you are is the decisions you make. And you can change that. Every day you can wake up and choose to be a better person. But when you have attachment issues, you don't believe you can change that. You have an external focus of control, an external locus of control is what we call it. You believe that everything that happens outside of you is what impacts who you are and what you can do. And you don't have any ability to change that and that you yourself are worthless. That's why we build identities. That's why we have to build identities. And we have to build identities that make other people respect us, care about us, identities that protect us, identities, identities that identify us as part of a community. That's why instead of being a man who happens to be gay, but I'm also these wonderful things with all these decisions I've made, they say, I am a gay man. And that's who they are. Um, be someone. Be someone who is more than your choice, your preferences or your hobbies or your interests or your innate qualities. Be the person that you are for your choices. That's the better choice. Choice, But again, when you have attachment, you often are not driven by your principles either. You are driven by your fears. When someone does something and, and says you have to make a choice, the terror is that you're going to be abandoned if you reveal who you really are on the inside. And the terror is that you are not worth keeping. So you most people, their massively high anxiety connects with their limbic system and says, this is fight or flight. I'm going to die if I make the wrong choice. I better choose what's going to make this other person happy. So we abandon the principles that we have. We are dishonest. We go with whatever we don't want to go with. And we hate ourselves for it. So we hate who we are on the inside because that character still exists character that you are that you've supplanted with an identity still exists and you hate the character that you are because that character does not follow the principles that you know are important that character gives in and lives based on fear and does things that you hate by selecting those principles and following them in every decision you change the content of your character within minutes <laughs> instantly by choosing to take that stand but to do that you have to massively decrease your anxiety response usually with a lot of physical um, physical management skills of anxiety because um, the brain once you're anxious it's really tough to stop being anxious you have to decrease the anxiety response you have to increase how important your priorities are to you you need to connect and repair your attachment you need to connect to the magical number seems to be three i don't know why it's three but the brain wants three people who fully understand you and accept you and love you and when you have all of those pieces put together, you begin living to your principles and then you stop hating yourself. Depression stops a lot of the times at that point. Um, anxiety plummets because you are accepted and loved by three people. You don't hate yourself. You don't think that life has no purpose anymore. You don't think that there's nothing you can do to make life better and you're always going to be miserable. Um, it gets better and better and better and better. And then you love who you are. And then you switch over from this is my identity to this is who I am. This is my character. That's when that switch happens. And, and it has to take place in that order. Hmm. That's so interesting. Why does it not work to cognitively understand this stuff? Because usually as an adult, you think, well, okay, so me, for example, I spent a lot of time alone as a kid because my oldest or my closest sister was seven years older than me and we did not get along and my mom was having lots of trouble. And so as an adult, I can say, I totally understand why I was alone a lot. But also what happens is when people don't hang out with me, I'm like, everyone must just hate me. Like, why yep. doesn't it work that I can say, I know that 
my family didn't hate me. But why is my reaction that? A couple things. Um, this will require another lengthy example. I, I talk okay. a lot, so forgive me. Interrupt me at any point if you want to. Okay. Um, uh, there's a couple pieces. Number one, you learned this when you were an infant. So you learned that water is wet. You learned that gravity pulls things down and you learned that you are unlovable. Those are, it's, it's a fact of your brain that's just the same as gravity. So we don't question it. And trying to question it is like questioning gravity. If you've seen like the Matrix, the movie, The Matrix, he's trying to like force himself to believe that he can do all these crazy things. It really is like that when you're trying to make yourself believe that somebody could actually love you. Um, added to that is constant latent anxiety because our brains aren't built for like modern day, like therapy world. They're built for like 10,000 years ago where we just figured out, Hey, if I eat all these seeds, all these fruits and then poop out the seeds and then come back later, the seeds have grown into plants. Hey, I can make agriculture. That was just 10,000 years ago. And our brains haven't really evolved much since then. So we still have that brain. So 10,000 years ago, if you really were unlovable, you would live on the outskirts of society and people would not take care of you. You were the most likely to get eaten by a predator, most likely to be speared in the back by, by a raiding tribe. If you got sick, nobody would care for you and you would die because they didn't really have medicine very well back then. If you broke your leg, you would just starve. You were the first one to die. So your brain is telling you, I live on the outskirts of society and no one will take care of me and I am going to die. The brain tells you I am going to die. It really believes it. So it welds the limbic system, the fight or flight response. It welds that to the ability to feel social pain on the inside of your brain. You can feel emotional pain, physical pain, and social pain. Social pain, it welds that to it and says, if I anticipate social pain, social pain can kill me five times faster than physical pain. I would rather take a knife to the chest than tell that person how I feel. So it raises your latent anxiety level to like seven out of 70% full, seven out of 10 anxiety every day. You wake up at seven out of 10 anxiety every day, just that's your normal living. So when something happens, you don't go from zero to 10. You don't have a nice buffer zone and go to three and then stop and think about it. You're at seven, you instantly go to nine and it's like, everything is horrible. And it's just because someone texted you and said, Hey, I want to talk to you later. <gasps> You know, and that's, and that's the fear. They are going to leave me. This is it. I am going to die. And we start responding as if we were going to die. That's why it makes it easier to get post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it doesn't get any easier with siblings because they also have that going on. And there's something about siblings when they are in a structure like this and in weak attachment, sibling rivalry gets way worse. It's not just like friendly jockeying for position. It turns into like, I'm, we are competing for limited resources. Our parents can't love us both and they tear each other down. So sisters who are in broken attachment families, sisters are horrible in broken attachment families. Sisters are, are rocky even under the best circumstances, but they still generally are at least loving and at least care about each other. If the, if the, if the parents don't teach that healthy attachment, sisters rip each other apart and you become worse enemies and you almost you wish the other one would die and just leave you alone kind of thing and it's horrible it's hard to repair and neither sister wants it or understand what's happening um but there's also another piece in the brain your brain is split um between the logical side on the left i think my camera's reversed the logical side is on your left the emotional side is on the right when you are spiked emotionally, there's not enough energy to, to have both. So when you have emotional spikes that are up like eight or nine out of 10, your brain spikes like this, like hard, and it diminishes your ability to be logical. Mm 
and it increases your emotional spiral. So you start doing this and you start getting what we call ruminations where you just spin that emotional thing over and over and over in your brain. Your brain is trying to get back to the logical side and process that thought logically and say, wait a minute, that person's not going to leave me. What am I doing? You can't do that because your logical brain is diminished. Your emotional brain is fully engaged and, and like flooding and it can't get that thought back there to process it. So you're processing it with your emotional brain, which only thinks five seconds of the future. How do I maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain for the next five seconds? I should just lie. I should just make something up. I should just tell them what they want to hear. I should just, and you start running damage control. Then you send them like eight paragraphs of text explaining everything you've ever felt and how you're going to buy them a house and give them a pony and everything like, and they're like, <laughs> I just wanted to talk to you about like the, the garbage pail or, you know, nothing. And you, here you are in damage control mode because you are going to die if they abandon you. That's your emotional brain. You have to logically be able to, you have to be able to physically first disengage that emotional brain. Um, the only way to overcome that spiral is through physical, prolonged physical discomfort. A lot of people cut, they self-mutilate. Um, that is a really inefficient and harmful version of the actual process, which is physical working out, yoga, progressive muscle relaxation is something I teach. Within 15 minutes, I can have somebody from like eight out of 10 anxiety to absolute zero, sometimes for the first time in their entire life. And they, some people cry they've never felt what zero anxiety feels like ever and they have a fully logical brain for the first time in their life and i say now do you see why it's been tough to make calm rational decisions um some people are 50 or 60 years old and i walk them through that and they've lived their entire life with an escalated brain diminished logic and their whole life has been how do i maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain for the next five seconds and that's why they are living a life that they hate so that is that's that's why as an adult, you and I, we can't just question the things that we imagined when we were kids. We can't just question, oh, yeah, gravity. Oh, yeah, gravity's crap. I can't believe I believed in gravity. What a dumb idea. That's, that's the equivalent of trying to believe that somebody loves you. And if you have never opened yourself up to other people, you can't experience the healing of being fully loved and engaged by other people. You can't experience that total acceptance the way that you could have a hundred years ago. If you were surrounded by like 20 aunts on both sides of your family who would like, Hey, you seem really anxious. We are going to swarm you with love and heal you from all those problems that you have. And we actually know who you are because we've watched you 24 hours a day for your entire life. You've never been away from any of us. We all know who you are. It's okay. And they would heal you. You don't have that now. So we don't, we, not only do we not have the structures in place to learn those good things, we don't have the structures in place to heal from them. We don't have the other people in place to catch them. It is not, up, it is not something that you can really do on your own. You have to learn these pieces from someone like me and then kind of do it on your own until you can reach a point where you start connecting with other people on purpose and then force yourself to build those loving relationships with three people. And it's very simple to do, but it's not easy to do. It's one of the simplest and one of the most terrifying things you will ever do in your life at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's I, why. I, uh, I feel like you've just described my own life to me, which is weird. <laughs> I have that to is almost every podcast I'm on. <laughs> I, I made a I made a joke about this two weeks ago. I was on a different podcast. I talked about this. So the, the podcaster was like, I've just realized I have attachment issues. <laughs> and I made a joke to one of my buddies. I said, I'm going to have a, a cigar off camera, like Sigmund Freud. I'm going to pull it up. I'm going to say, 
tell me about your mother. <laughs> Next time that <laughs> happens, because every person I talk to about this, they say, I never realized that what you're describing isn't normal, but I'm realizing that I'm having those same feelings. Almost everyone in our generation, your generation and mine, you look a lot younger than I am. Um, <laughs> in our generation, everyone, not everyone, but so many people have broken attachments and even if they don't they have wounded attachment because the people they've been around all their life their peers have broken attachments so even if you grew up with good healthy attachment you don't know what's going on and why all these people are acting so horrible you get out of your good loving family into this world where everyone else is insane to your perspective and that can really wound attachment too it was really funny when you mentioned uh, just like a text, hey, can I, can we talk about something? Like that is literally the scariest thing anyone can ever say. Yeah. My sister Absolutely. did this. Um, my oldest sister, she's 16 years older than me and essentially my second mom. But <laughs> two months ago, she texted me, hey, can we get together and talk later today? And immediately I was like, <gasps> what did I do? So much yeah. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so dumb and then she just wanted to no. talk about something complete that had literally the least amount to do with me that anything could possibly have and this that is a key display of the difference between healthy attachment and unhealthy attachment unhealthy attachment says what did i do and then start spiraling out trying to figure out how to fix the damage healthy attachment says oh i wonder what they want to talk about did something happen to them <laughs> huh I'd never thought about thinking that one, huh? <laughs> I'll have to remember could it be that, that they time. could it be that they have something? But and you will try to remember that for next time, and your logical brain will not be engaged. Your emotional brain will and will kick on and begin spiraling out of control. And hopefully, at some point, you will calm down. Probably after you've had the talk, and you will calm down and say, "Wow, I really spiraled off out of control." Hey, wait a minute! I remember telling Adam I was going to try in advance. To remember that next time. And then your brain will make that connection, very, very faint connection and say, oh yeah, maybe there was something to that. And then over the next year, as people text you, hey, we need to talk. And you do that, the gap will get shorter and shorter and shorter. And your brain will start learning more and more and more. Hey, wait, Adam was right. That's kind of how that process starts to work. Once we are, we, how do I want to say, we are behavioral beings. I'm very much a behaviorist of like, teach the person to hit the right lever and they'll get the right response and they'll just hit that lever for the rest of their life like we're rats but also cognitive like we are human beings and we are capable of rational thought when our logical brain is engaged so behavior kicks on when our emotional brain is engaged the cognitive part kicks on when we're logically engaged and you have to do both to make a person work and that's how we heal so yeah there's a process there's a process for fixing what you're going, what you're talking about. There's a process for fixing that. I built that process. So uh, do you, are happen. you still accepting clients or are you full? <laughs> no, I, um, I, I terminated my license so that I could go much wider because when you have a therapy license, you can only treat people in the state where you are licensed. So if they are five minutes over the border, you can't help them. If they are from a different country, you can't help them. Um, the therapy license, it's cool and it's awesome. And it limits you completely when you go try to go wider. Um, I, I do a little bit of coaching. I'm kind of exploring coaching. And what I'm really looking at is building a system, like a video system or something that someone could just buy the system 
watch all of me explaining this and I lay out all the tools and all the exercises and a roadmap to exactly how to fix it. And across like an hour or two of, or three of video and exercises and pieces, I show you how to fix this on your own. And you just buy that system, watch it, engage with it, do it. And you fix all your problems on your own. That's what I'm trying to build right now. When do you so. think it'll be done? <laughs> so I already have, I already have that in a 100 page book on Amazon. It's called slaying your fear. It's a hundred pages. I built, I wrote it for people who hate reading because I also write really like heavy metal pulp fiction, <laughs> gunfights and car chases. So I, I wrote, I write those and I tried to write a punchy, interesting hundred page book for people who hate books. Um, it's a two hour, I think it's a two hour audio book. It's like six bucks for the audio book. I think it's four ninety nine for the, the ebook. Um, it builds, it shows the whole system and people who go through that, you can read the reviews. People who go through it are like, this has changed my life. I'm following it. It's fixing it. I wrote that as a pamphlet so that when people came into my office the first time for assessments, I could say, Hey, you have attachment issues, read this hundred page book and then come back and we'll actually do any of the problems that you have. So, and they would read the, sometimes they'd read the book and they'd come back and say, wow, I know exactly what we need to do to fix all of this. And I'd say, okay, do it. And then I'll help you troubleshoot any problems that you have. And it was that simple. Like I said, it's, it's actually a very simple fix. It's not a complicated fix. It's just terrifying. And you have to overcome your anxiety first to be able to do it. So people can feel encouraged that they don't have to go to therapy. They could read a book because therapy is a scary thing. And some people are like, yeah, I'm a man. You know, I don't go to therapy. Yeah. I mean, there's all those memes like, you know, men will do men will do this instead of going to therapy. And it's true. Like we hate therapy because therapy is built a lot of therapy styles, at least the most popular ones are and most cliche ones are built around um, more, more female style of healing of verbally processing out loud. And a lot of women, their brains are built to verbally process out loud with each other. And that bonds you to the other person who's, who's listening and helping you through it. But it also helps you process how you feel as you put those emotions into your logical brain through processing them. Um, men don't typically work that way. We, we, we feel better by solving problems and we only talk to find solutions. It can help to process some of those feelings, but we want solutions and then we fix them and then we feel better and we don't want to talk anymore. <laughs> Okay. So therapy is not, it, that's why a lot of men don't want to go to therapy. Um, my book is built on identifying your feelings, telling you why you have your feelings, and then targeted exercises that fix those feelings and help you feel better feelings for the rest of your life. Um, I'm not saying people don't need therapy, but at least this will vastly diminish a lot of the hard work that's going to go into the first six months or even the first year of therapy. They can vastly diminish the pay that you're going to have to do for five bucks. You get a book or for a thousand dollars, go to therapist long enough for them to learn what your problems are and then try to build you a system, their system that kind of might target some problems one by one as they come up. This is an overhaul that will make your life easier when you do go to therapy later and it'll save you a lot of money. That's awesome. What are some of the most like seemingly unrelated problems that you have seen resolved if they've fixed attachment? <laughs> um, affairs and relationships, cheating, the number one, like almost the only, almost the only reason people cheat is because of attachment issues. Um, they believe, especially men, when men cheat, it usually is, I have these needs. I 
can't ask you for them. <laughs> I treated a lot of couples where the, the couples would only have sex once a year. And the husband and the husband would say, I'd say, why do you guys only have sex once mm-hmm. a year? And she'd say, because he never asks for it. And he'd say, well, you would tell me no if I did ask. And I'm like, how would you know she would tell you no if you've never asked? And that kind of is, well, I just know she just would. That right there is a lot of that attachment piece. So then he ends up having a porn addiction. Porn addiction is huge with attachment issues because it's so much easier to have this relationship with pixels on the screen. Um, OnlyFans exists because of attachment issues. It's a pseudo girlfriend relationship where someone pretends to care about you and sends you personalized videos that are sexual content where you, the male, is providing the, the provider role and giving her money and she's rewarding you with personalized sex experiences. Um, without ever actually having any kind of a relationship at all. That's a huge attachment piece. Um, most addictions, I've treated heroin addiction, crack addiction, meth addiction, um, even like heavy marijuana use, uh, alcohol issues tie back into attachment issues really hard because you're run, you are chronically low on dopamine all the time. So you're looking for dopamine releases. You're looking to escape. You're looking to turn off that emotional brain that's constantly spiking. Um, Oh man, there's so many divorces. I don't know that I've ever seen a divorce ever happen that wasn't tied in with an attachment issue on one side or the other, sometimes both. Um, so if you don't want to get a divorce and if you don't want to have an affair happen in your relationship, and if you don't want either one of you or your kids to start using drugs, <laughs> fix both of your attachment issues. But unfortunately you can only fix both attachment issues in the couple if both cut parts of the couple are willing to do that terrifying work and make it work and make it happen. So um Man, so many other pieces, video game addictions, a lot of the behaviors you see where it's escapist, where it's, I just need to feel good, where it's someone texted me and I'm freaking out and panicking, where it's, you know, I'm nervous all the time. So I get diagnosed with ADHD, misdiagnosed. That happens a lot with people that their little kids go to school and they're anxious and and they're misdiagnosed that way. Perfectionism, especially in very smart young women. Um, seems like the smarter the woman is, the worse her perfectionism becomes and the more anxious she becomes with attachment issues. Um, very smart women, young women and young girls with attachment issues become such perfectionists that if they get an A instead of an A plus, they feel like they have completely failed and they start crying uncontrollably because it's not good enough and they are not good enough. And everyone's now going to see it because it's a mark on a paper and it's proof that no one could ever love her. Um, young women with attachment issues are mass can, can be massive perfectionists, especially the smarter they are. So yeah, there's all kinds of things that go into attachment. It's, it's unbelievable how many things are impacted by attachment pieces. Even, um, even how close you are to your pets can be attack can be go into attachment because pets are very safe creatures who will never judge you. They don't have the cognitive abilities and it's really easy to earn their love and earn their love and approval and feel like that is a safe relationship to replace your other relationships. So I'm not down on people who love animals at all, but people who identify as like, this is my child. Those people typically, I'm going to get so much hate mail for this. People are going to come to my house. People who identify as being a parent of their animal often as a replacement for the relationship that they kind of somewhat wish they could have. Um, but can't ever have <laughs> in their mind. So they, they really attach to this animal and they genuinely love their animals. It's not like they don't, 
it's just it's a safe alternative to the more challenging difficult relationships that they don't believe they can ever have or they're afraid of or they've convinced themselves they don't want all of those things can tie into attachment really hard i am a crazy cat person and people know this and uh i've (laughs) i usually when people kind of tease me depending on how comfortable i feel with them i'll tell them why i'm a cat person which is that uh spending all the time alone that i did as a child the only thing i always had was a cat Mm -hmm. and i've like literally never lived without a cat Yep. And then people go, oh, and then they feel bad for making fun of me. So, <laughs> and, and that, you know, there's, there's elements of that. Um, you can have good attachment and still love animals and they've always been a part of your life and you don't feel whole without them. That can, that is, that is not an attachment issue. Um, if you dress that cat up in outfits, little hats and celebrate the cat's birthday and cook meals for the cat. And then call your sister to complain that your cat is in a teenager phase and is not giving you the attention or respect that you deserve. These are literal examples of people I've wow. actually talked to. Um, and if you, you ascribe those, those, the p- actual legitimate parenting pieces into the animal, that often is attachment. Wow. That's so fascinating. What has been the most difficult case for you to crack between maybe your prison time and you mentioned the other clinical thing where they would send you the hardest couples mm-hmm. um, the biggest problem is when someone doesn't believe there is better out there because they're so rooted in what they are and how they feel and and don't believe that there's any better especially if they've committed horrible behavioral acts and they, ha- they can't go back. So they have a personality disorder, full-on personality disorder. That's really where the mind has hardened around those things and cannot ever, and, and not can't go back, but believes that it can't go back. So when you try to crack them open, if they reach rock bottom, it's just like a drug addiction, they have to reach absolute rock bottom before they're ready to even try. Many of them will kill themselves instead because they're at absolute rock bottom and they feel like they've lost everything and they have no choice but to get better. Uh, or kill themselves. And many of them will, unfortunately. Um, But then helping people with true personality disorders recover from that is really tough because it's a massive uphill climb against not just, it's not just like the matrix where it's like, oh, I have to unlearn some rules of the world. They have to unlearn everything they've ever believed. And it tears their mind apart. And it is so brutal for them that many times they have to be institutionalized just to keep them safe while they do it. There are some people that extreme examples. I'm not saying they can't get better because I've seen horrible, like multiple murderers turn around and develop real attachment through a very bad struggle and survive it and come through it and become loving people who are self-sacrificing in a good way for the people around them to care for them and nurture them who become all of a sudden really good parents after being horrible and trying to heal those relationships. I've seen that. I've seen miracles happen and they can, but it it really is getting someone to believe that there is better. Getting someone to actually believe that when I say, this is healthy attachment, this is unhealthy attachment. They say, healthy attachment isn't real. You're lying to me or you're delusional. That never happens. Only this is the reality. Those people, that's when it makes it hardest. And that, man, I mean, it's, but the more stake you have in believing that bad is real and that good is non-existent, 
the more you have to believe that for your own sanity, the harder it is to fix that attachment. So that's, that's the number one piece. And those people probably are not here listening to this podcast. <laughs> those people <laughs> are probably out there right now trying to get their next dopamine fix, trying to control someone in their life, trying to run damage control, trying to exploit somebody. Um, those people are not here listening to this podcast, even trying to get more insight into their life, trying to get better. Insight is the enemy. So I follow your Twitter, which is great. People should do that. Um, but the other day you said that someone with attachment issues cannot, uh, it was something about cannot be a good Christian. It wasn't that, but it was, you'll have, oh, yes. you won't have a good relationship with God. Go ahead. So Christians with attachment issues okay. cannot, without healing their attachment issues, cannot really embrace God because the Christian faith at its core is a relationship. It's a relationship with God. It's a relationship with yourself and it's a relationship with other people. Those are the three core pieces of the Christian faith and everything else in the Christian faith teaches you how to have that relation, those relationships, how to, how to live in them, how to improve them and how to do them right. That's what the 10 commandments are. They're all about relationships to those three individuals, yourself, God, and others. That order was bad. God, yourself, and others. <laughs> First commandment. Um, all of the Christian faith is built around relationships. If you fundamentally cannot engage with relationships, you are going to have a very difficult time because you're going to try to earn God's love and approval through works instead of actually believing that God really loves you and forgives you. And so you're going to do good things in reflection of God's worth. A, a, I don't want to say a good Christian. But, but a, a fully engaged Christian is not trying to do good things to earn God's work, God's approval. It's not trying to do good things to not be, not go to hell. That's like, that's not even the bare minimum. That's a misunderstanding of God's love for you. I'm a very devout Christian myself. I won't say, I won't say I'm a good Christian. I'm trying, but I'm a devout Christian <laughs> in that regard. I try really hard. That's mm -hmm. what that means. Um, that fundamental disconnect between believing God can actually love you. And trying to just barely creep in so God will let you sleep on his carpet for the rest of your afterlife. Um, those are very different things. Very different things. Yeah. That sounds like the prodigal son where he's like, maybe I could just be a servant. That's what people with attachment come back and do is they come back and say, he doesn't really love me. What I've done is so bad that there's no way I could, I could ever make it up. So I'm just going to barely come back and be a slave. Um, that's the piece that if, if the prodigal son had said, my father can't really love me, and that's kind of what he's saying there. He's doubting his father's love for him. The prodigal son at the end very much is someone with bad attachment. Uh, it's also someone who's deeply in, in the guilt of sin, but even someone who's deeply in the guilt of sin can still accept that God loves them if they have good attachment. Someone who has bad attachment, God would say, come back, please, and be my, be my child again. And they'd be like, oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. No, 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 it's okay. I'll be a slave. And, and <laughs> that, that's that bad attachment. Yeah. Um, I'd really be more very, comfortable outside. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Please just give me like a dog dish so I can eat off the floor because that's what I deserve. No, I don't deserve any better than that. Um, 
that's that's bad attachment and, and and bad attachment as a christian is god like no get in here you're gonna be my child and you're like no i can't no just leave me that's that's a christian with bad attachment because it's that disconnect of i have sinned therefore i am a worthless piece of human garbage god can never forgive this sin even if he could he'll forgive it for everyone else but not for me because i'm just below his notice i'm scum god doesn't really want me that's what that connection is that's the problem um it's very difficult i don't again i'm not going to say you can't be a good christian i'm not going to say you're not a christian but it is difficult to live a engaged christian life if that is your belief is that god can never truly love you will never really forgive you and that you have to work constantly to just earn the bare scraps of love that and approval that he could temporarily give you it's the belief that god's love for you is a is a bucket full of holes and when you do something good, he pours some love into that bucket, but it's pouring out really fast. So you better go do another good deed to make God pour more love in that bucket. That's, that's bad attachment. And that's just not a, um, it's not a good reflection on God. <laughs> it really is a fundamental dis- misunderstanding of who God is and what God wants from you and what God wants for you. And it's a denial of God. It, it really is. Um, so it's it, you cannot fully accept the relationship and live with the covenant with God. I'm not saying you're not saved at all, but, but man, what a sad way to live. Like if you were God, would you want someone that you loved to feel like that? Probably like, not. I would say no. Right. <laughs> like when they asked Jesus, how do you, how should we pray? I'm sorry. Is it okay if I go on a Christian rant for a little while? Yes, please. I ask. have questions. Yeah. Okay. If, I'm write them down when they so asked Jesus, when, when they asked Jesus, how do I, how do we pray? He said, he started with Abba, which is what a baby, I mean, those are basic noises. I have three kids at home, babies, blah, 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 blah. So a baby would say Abba for Dada. You know, my kids call me Dada in, in the Jude, in the, in the, the old Hebrew um, and the, the old Israelite dialect, that would be Abba, which is daddy what's a baby would call a little child call their father that's what jesus said call he said he said start your prayer with oh daddy <laughs> like that's the prayer he told us to pray that is an indication of the relationship god expects from us as children children little children not even big children like little like wet your pants kind of children like eating play-doh off the table kind of children that's the relationship he expects with us um turning that into a constant system of checklists and am i going to hell today did i do enough to earn god's approval today that's a fundamental misunderstanding and disconnect and if you think that that's what someone who loves you wants from you oh that's horrible that you can't live that way no wonder you try to raise your kids christian and they fall away from the faith if that's what they think the faith is that's mm-hmm. horrible. Nobody would ever want that. Nobody would be a Christian if that's how Christianity really worked. So I wonder about this idea that we, you know, we come to God and we're like, just give us the dog dish, please. We're kind of, you know, when we're in church and they do the altar call, it's all based around how terrible of a person you are. And so you need Jesus to save you. And so like on one hand, we need to recognize that we're imperfect creatures that are trying to have a relationship with a perfect person. So it's how do you balance the I know I'm not perfect, but I'm 
maybe don't just have to be okay with the dog dish. Yeah, absolutely. Number one, fix your attachment. Buy my book. And then no. <laughs> um, yeah, no, fix, fix the attachment piece with human beings around okay. you and you will begin to experience what love feels like. And then you can begin to imagine what love feels like with God. Um, that's a big piece of it is we have to experience it, which is why God puts so many controls on the relationships around us and gives us parents and gives us extended family networks. That's why he, one reason he gives us those things, because what is the meaning of life to love, to know, and to love God? That is the purpose of your life and everything flows from that. So then what we do as, cause I am, I am Catholic. So there is a lot of the, you know, the Catholic guilt of, you know, you pound your chest through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous. And we do that. Um, when you grow up in a family with broken attachment, where they don't understand God, so your parents can't explain the, what that means to you, it looks like you are saying, God, I deserve to eat out of a dog dish. Please make me live on the floor and eat out of a dog dish. It sounds like that when we're doing that. Actually, what's happening is... Um, how do I explain this in a simple way? <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> ideas that's in the head, right? Yeah. It's in the head and you're trying to put together. Um, it goes back to this. Um, I have, I have three kids. And when I, my son was born before he was born, I didn't understand how God loved us. After he was born, I would look at my son when he was maybe six months old and maybe eight months old, he'd sit up in his crib and he'd be in his crib playing with his toys. And I'd be standing over him kind of watching him. And once in a while, he would look up and look up and go and jump because he didn't remember I was there. And then he would smile at me and reach to me and I would grab his hand and we'd play. And I was so happy that he saw me. And then he'd kind of look back at his toys and play with his cars and, and go back to his toys and forget about me and then look up and go <laughs> again and do it again <laughs> and again and again. And it recurred to me, there's a Bible verse that God sings over us like a father singing over his children that was what that was. And that moment I had this thunderbolt of that's how God sees me. He's not angry at me when I, when I stop praying or forget about him for a while, he's watching me play in my crib and my son would chew on his toes and then poke himself in the eye. And he's watching me do those things. Like, like I watch my son and he's not angry at, I'm not angry at my son for not looking at me. I'm happy that he's playing. And when he looks at me, I am thrilled and I'm happy to engage with him when he engages with me. I don't sit there and say, you damn little eight, you're eight month old. How dare you not look at me? And that's not what God is doing either. But God is magnificent more than we are. Um, he deserves that constant attention, but he doesn't demand it of us. So when we, and, and he is perfect and he loves us, so he deserves perfect love back. That's the piece that's missing. He deserves those things. So when we're acknowledging it and we're doing the, oh, I am scum, please step on me. When we're doing that, what that actually is, is acknowledging how good God is, that we have fallen short of his absolute love for us as a, as a child to a loving father, but that he loves us anyway. And that Jesus has come and paid that bar tab. The sin doesn't go away. Jesus comes and says, hey, you were going to go to prison. I'll go to prison for you. The debt is paid, but in return, you're in covenant with me. So you're agreeing to follow these things that I have for you that will give you even more love and will make your life even better. Here's my terms for the relationship. Follow these and we can be close forever for the rest of your life. That's what that is. 
when you don't have a good attachment, when your parents don't have a good attachment, and when your parents don't teach you that, if they don't, don't even know, and if your church isn't talking about it and your, your priest isn't teaching that, it feels like, wow, we are scum. God is better than us. How could we ever even come close to him? I am garbage. Everyone around me is better than me. I am worse than everybody. I don't even deserve to be here. And over 10, 20 years of that, you start to say, man, your brain doesn't even like thinking about God. So you start to drift away. But it is, you know, I've done these things and I've missed these pieces. I'm the kid looking down and poking myself in the eye and chewing on my foot and then remembering, oh, yeah, I have a dad. And you look up and see him there. That is our relationship to God. Um, the word sin is an old English archery term, meaning to miss the mark. You have missed the targeted mark. The target is perfection. You can only attain that through close communion with God as you grow in the Holy Spirit. You don't have to hate yourself for the sins that you've committed. You do have to say, wow, I missed the mark. I need to aim better. and I need to figure out how to be better. That's the point of doing this is I love God so much that I'm going to continue to get better and better and better. So that's, that's why I tell people the difference between, man, I don't want to sound like a jerk when I say this, but the difference between um, people who just go to church on Sunday and a actual legitimate, like practicing in this, in my case, Catholic is when you go all the time and you have sacraments and you are reading your Bible and you are, I have a rosary right now in my pocket. My wife makes me pray the rosary like every day. And it's awesome. She's a great, great guide in that. Um, when you are deeply engaging every day, you are a sinner in recovery. So you are reco a recovering alcoholic. You are going to AA meetings every day. If you love your family that much, you don't just say, ah, I'm just going to not drink. And then you just keep sipping and relapsing all the time. You go to AA meetings that will keep you sober if that's where you're at. And you can't do it without the AA meetings. You go to recovery programs and you build recovery into your life so that you show the people around you how much you love them and you invest in getting better yourself. That's, that is, again, as it's a reminder of, oh man, I, I need to make sure I'm going to AA meetings so I don't keep sinning. It is not that you are a dog and that you need to eat out of a dog dish. It is that God loves you so much and is so wonderful that that's the, that's the only, that's his due. Like, dude, you're God. Like, you deserve better than this. Here, let me, let me give you better than what I'm giving you right now. And understanding that he will make up the difference. Um, this, all of that, all that blah, 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 is embodied by the Sistine Chapel. Um, on the roof of the Sistine Chapel is the famous painting of God right? Doing like the, the man flex and reaching out to Adam and Adam's like doing the weak, like pathetic, you know, that, that picture. Yes. Um, and God's finger is like this, like pointing and Adam's finger is like this. And there's just barely a misconnection mm -hmm. originally. So the story goes originally Michelangelo painted their fingers touching, but their fingers were touching like this. And the Cardinals of the time or the archbishop, I don't remember, came in and said, no, we do not want God and Adam like equally touching fingers. God must be extending his finger and Adam's finger must be just barely. He, all Adam has to do is stretch his finger the barest amount and God will make up the rest of the difference. God is waiting for Adam to just stretch his finger the tiniest amount and the connection will be there. That embodies to them. And that's why that picture is still there today. That's why that, that, that picture embodies what we have to do. It's not, I have to become perfect before God will love me. It is, I just have to look up and see my father loves me and try to just be better and not chew on my foot as often. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. 
that's what all those reminders are meant to be is I need God and God deserves better than what I'm doing. So today I should go out and I should make myself a little bit better than I was yesterday, but it comes across as really horrible guilt. <laughs> so that's that piece. Don't, don't ever let anyone tell you that you should feel wretched for being a Christian. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Catholic guilt is a real normal thing. Catholic guilt exists because of poor attachment and poor parental teaching. That's what Catholic guilt is based on. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, thank you for the therapy session. <laughs> that's usually, that's usually what I get. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything else you want to mention before I do a couple closing questions? Oh man. Um, you know, if any of this podcast has, has touched your heart, number one, I'm not diagnosing anything. So go see a professional. Um, but if anything in this has touched your heart and you're afraid that this is you and you don't know how to get better, man, my book is one place to start, but it's not the only resource. There are so many things out there. Life is all about relationships and everything you can do to get better in your relationships will make your whole life better. So fix your attachment and everything else will get so much better. It really will. And you can get better. It's not hopeless. You're not stuck. You don't have to live the way you're living. If you are in emotional pain, recognize that there must be a natural state where you exist without emotional pain. All you have to do is figure out how to reach that. And there are ways and systems out there to help you do that. One is my book, Slaying Your Fear. Um, but that just helps you connect in relationships. If, if you can connect deeper in your relationships and be more honest and more open and receive that love and acceptance that you need, that will begin to heal you. The love of other people is what really heals you. So I ask these questions to everyone who comes on. You can take as much time as you want. There's no sure. time constraint here. Sure. Question one is, do you prefer the office or parks and rec? Ooh. God, I think I'm going to have to say parks and rec because I like, I really like Chris Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Number two. Um, in Genesis chapters one through 11, is this a legend slash myth story or is it history? Ah, good question. So if you were a human being and God was showing you a vision of how all of that worked, it would probably look like we describe it in Genesis. So it can actually be both. It can be a human vision trying and that person trying to imperfectly through limited human language divinely inspired but through limited human language and limited human understanding express what they saw in that vision as different days and as different pieces of creation um i believe the catholics teaching is that you can either you can interpret it as either you can interpret it that whichever way feels truest to your heart to my understanding i could be totally wrong that is uh that's the official stance of the church but i think it is awe-inspiring either way if god did it just like hey poof 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 like you know like doing the finger guns while he was doing it if that's how he did it awesome he is most powerful if he did it over billions and billions and billions of years and then allowed us to allowed the writer of genesis to view that and express it as a vision and write it to us where we could at least get a snapshot of what that looked like that is also awe-inspiring i think either way is great do you think that there are aliens? Good, Really good question. Um, it is possible. 
it is possible. Everything is possible in God, right? Yeah, someone said that. Um, <laughs> it is possible. If they exist, if they came down, my first thought would be that they might be fallen angels trying to fool us, right? Um, you look at the book of Enoch and the angels came down and they, they laid with humans and they created the half human hybrids, um, which is where you get David and Goliath. Goliath was the last of those um, non-canonical book, but really interesting. Um, I, my first thought would be, wow, these could be fallen angels, demons tempting us. Um, if they were not, then they would be mortal souls. And that would actually theologically make them human which means it would be our job to go out and teach them about Christ. And that could be very interesting. Do I think there are? I have no idea. There could be. And if there were, man, that would be a whole new chapter of human history. That'd be really pretty sweet, actually. So you want there to be, but if you, let's get it on a tail, on a scale of one to 10, one is no way. 10 is, yeah, I definitely think there are. I just haven't seen one yet. Where do you land? I personally, I think there are not, I, I do not think that there are, um, there's plenty of, plenty of pieces that I can't explain. And I'm not saying that all of those are fake, but I don't think that there are just because I don't think that there needs to be for the theological system that we have. I think that there's only one Christ. He wouldn't appear and solve everyone's sin on every planet. He would do it once for all time for all beings, and it would be our job to teach them. Um, so I think it's just us. I think there's enough. <laughs> there's enough. There's enough humans. I think that we are alien enough to each other that I don't think for God's system to work, there needs to be aliens. I don't think that there are. Um, but I could be totally wrong, and that would be pretty freaking sweet. Okay, last one. Who or what inspires you to be your best self? And don't say Jesus if you can help it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yes. Um, my children, my children. Um, I was just thinking this morning, I just posted this on my Twitter this morning that my, my first child was my son and that changed everything because now I had someone who not only was he my child, but he's the same sex as me. So he's going to model himself on me. Everything I do, he's going to grow up believing is normal. And that's sometimes a terrifying thought because I know I am imperfect and he's going to think my imperfections are normal. So the best thing, if he's going to grow up thinking I am normal, and if he's going to grow up emulating my behavior, I must optimize my behavior. So he is emulating the best possible example. And my daughters came along. Same thing. I mean, someday they'll marry people who they'll, they'll look to men like me to get love and approval and that's also a scary thought. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I have to optimize that too. Their, their lives and their, their choice and partners will reflect my life and my choice and partners. So it's a terrifying thought. It's, again, it's just like the uh, <laughs> going to church, like, hey, I, where's my dog dish? Um, but my kids more than anything, more than anything. And thinking about my kids and how that will impact my grandkids, how that will impact my great grandkids thinking about like the 200 I've mapped it out, man. If you have three kids and they have three kids and they have three kids within like 120 years, you've got 250 descendants. If it's just three and three and three, 250 people looking at you in the next 120 years. Dang. <laughs> That's a, so that makes, yeah, that makes me 
want to be a better person. And that's that I would tell people that when they come in, when moms would come in with, with alcohol addictions and, and heroin addictions, and I'd tell them, man, you have three kids, like that's 250 people who are going to be like you. How do you feel about that? And I would have moms like put down the drugs that day and go stone cold sober from that day on. So. Wow. Awful thought, man. That's me. That's my, that's my uh, gun to my head. Better improve or else kind of moment. I guess that wraps up. Thank you for Wonderful. doing this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was a really fun discussion. Thank you. Yeah. And also I have to say, I feel cool. But the fact that like Michaela Peterson and Chris Williamson have had you on their podcast, I feel like it instantly brings me up quite a few notches. So, yeah. Uh, you know, um, I love getting people emailing me and asking me to talk. It's uh, don't stop doing that. Just okay. reach out, shoot your shot. Cause the, the worst that's going to happen is they won't write you back. And the best that's going to happen is they're going to say, yeah, heck yeah, I'd love to talk about attachment. Cause the more I can teach people about attachment, However many people listen to your podcast, if it's 10, if it's 10 million, the more people who can learn about attachment, the better the world gets for my kids in the future. Yeah.